The views in this do not necessarily reflect the views of WKNC, Student Media, or NCSU. You're listening to Eye on the Triangle on WKNC 88.1. Good afternoon, Raleigh, and welcome to this week's Eye on the Triangle. It's June 29th, and the time is 4.08. And on behalf of the team here at WKNC, I'd like to thank you for tuning in. I'm Marissa Jordan. Later in the show, we'll have Community Calendar, This Day in History, and the Weather. And as always, Jake Winters brings you Snowverated. This week, he reviews the film The Illusionist. Saif Hassan brings you News Beyond the Headlines. This week, he takes a look at how the stock markets around the world are doing after Britain's decision to leave the EU and gay rights in Australia. But first, I did an interview with NC State Professor of European Politics, Mark Nance, about the Brexit. On June 23rd, the British people made the momentous decision to leave the European Union. This leave is unprecedented, as Britain is the first country ever to back out of the Union. To better understand the politics and backstory behind the event, I sat down with NC State Professor of European Politics, Mark Nance. Uh, my name is Mark Nance. Uh, I am an assistant professor of political science in uh, NC State School of Public and International Affairs. My primary expertise are on what we would call global governance, uh, but also international political economy and European politics. And I teach two classes, basically those international political economy and European politics. To understand the Brexit, it is first important to understand what the European Union is, why it started, and what benefits it gives to its members today. So let me start maybe with how it started. And it, it really found its foundation in response to the disasters of not just World War II, but World War I as well, and a generation that was really exhausted at the idea of having to fight another world war. And so the idea was really to make them consciously interdependent on one another, and it really starts as the European coal and steel communities. The idea was to integrate those markets. To make the war machine, basically, you needed coal and steel. And so the idea was if you could integrate those two and make even sort of the sale of coal and steel dependent upon joint decision-making, then no one state, in particular Germany is what we're talking about, could monopolize enough of those resources to rebuild the war machine such as Hitler had done. It starts out, um, the idea of it, uh, and the idealism, if you will, behind it was really about preventing war through primarily market integration. And so from there, there are lots of different projects, I think is maybe the way to talk about the European Union. The most advanced project is the single market and the market integration. And that is the how freely can goods, people, and capital flow across borders. And maybe the most extreme example of that is the euro, which does away with all of the currencies for those in the, in the eurozone. And so they all use the same currency. And so some of the inefficiencies that you had for if you wanted to sell widgets from Italy to Austria, you had to basically pay a tax because you had to change, uh, convert your money, right, the lira into shillings or vice versa. And so that part of it is the best developed. That's why for those part of the Schengen Accord, you don't have to have passports to go across borders and all of those sorts of things. But there's also a common foreign policy, a common trade policy. It's very well developed. And so, it, you know, it really depends on the policy area. Next. 
What prompted the Brexit? 51, nearly 52 percent of the British people decided to leave the European Union. Now, the bigger question is why that is. And of course, there are lots of different reasons, I would say, for why that is. But effectively, Prime Minister David Cameron, who himself was in favor of the European Union and remaining in the European Union, although perhaps with some changes to the rules, because Great Britain has always had a sort of special relationship with the European Union. But effectively, as a political ploy, I would say, agreed to call for a referendum or allow a referendum on the question of union membership. And to the surprise of many and most, I would say, even though it shouldn't have been a surprise, and we can talk about that, that the British people voted to leave. One of the biggest concerns surrounding the Brexit is the economic impact it could have on the UK and the rest of the world. Well, that's the big question right now. And of course, the pound has suffered dramatically. It's at its lowest point since the mid-1980s which is a very rough time for the pound, and it dropped very fast. But it's still hard to say. I heard on the radio coming in this morning that, you know, the debate is now about the the terms of the exit, effectively. And will the European Union sign a trade agreement with the UK? Because at this point, all those are, are, are null and void, the, the previous rules. And if they can come to a an agreement on a, a free or relatively free trade agreement, I think the implications won't be so dire. Britain does have a major world economy, so there is some worry on how the Brexit could potentially affect the United States. I would go back to that last answer, I suppose, and say I think the the effect that it will have on the U.S. depends on whether the markets calm down. So the U.S. is in the process of negotiating uh, transatlantic trade and investment partnership, TTIP, with the European Union, which of course at the time, basically until now, involved the U.K. But there's a fair amount of debate about how much that really matters because trade between, let's say, the U.S. and, and the U.K. and Europe is already pretty free. There are not a lot of uh, real major barriers to it. So I think that's not a, a huge deal. One of the big questions is what will happen to the finance industry and some of the aeronautics industry that has started, you know, London is one of the top two financial cities in the world um, by with New York. And so if the financial industry decides that it's much more beneficial to be sort of relocate into, into the continent, into the European Union, that could hurt the UK which would not be good for the U.S. Anytime you have a country as large or an economy as large as the U.K. that suffers, and we've sort of understood this for the past 20 years or so, then everybody is harmed by that. Scotland and Northern Ireland both voted to stay in the European Union. What could be the outcome of this discontent? Well, there's a lot of talk right now about whether we'll look back in a couple of years and say this was the end of the United Kingdom. And so, of course, Scotland had a a referendum just a year ago, I think. And that was another case where the polling seemed to suggest that they might leave, but there the status quo held sway and, and they stayed in. This may be enough to, if they were to hold another referendum, especially if they do it quickly while everyone's still very agitated about it, then I think it might be enough to send them out and and break up the UK as we know it, right? That would be fairly dramatic. I don't know what the sort of real material implications of that would be. I tend to think that it wouldn't be so huge, but symbolically to have this sort of United Kingdom end would be a pretty big deal. Uh, there is a lot of concern about Northern Ireland. Of course, Northern Ireland has, has been at an unsteady state of peace, if you want to call it that. Some would argue that it's more non-war than actual real peace. Uh, There's still a a fair amount of violence and and discord there. And, And if 
if the UK is unable to really exercise a calming hand in that situation uh, because of this, that could erupt again into violence. And that's the more dire situation, I think. While it is truly impossible to know what exact impacts the Brexit will cause the United Kingdom and the world, one thing's for sure, Britain made history. I'd like to thank Professor Nance for his time. And I'm Marissa Jordan for Eye on the Triangle. I'm Saif Hassan, and this is your News Beyond the Headlines. Asian stock markets have recorded more gains, continuing the positive lead set by the U.S. and Europe on Tuesday. Wall Street and bourses across Europe have been recovering some of the ground since the U.K. voted last week to leave the EU. In Japan, the benchmark Nikkei 225 share index finished 1.6% higher at 15,566.83. Shares in the car company Toyota rose by more than 2% despite fresh recalls over faulty airbags. Other markets across Asia also saw gains despite the continued uncertainty in the wake of the UK's referendum vote. Investors are hoping that central banks will step in with more stimulus measures should the global economy weaken. Hong Kong's Hang Seng closed 1.3% higher at 20,436.12, while the mainland benchmark Shanghai Composite finished up 0.65% at 2,931.59. In Australia, the ASX 200 index also closed higher, up 0.8% at 5,142.4. In South Korea, the Kospi share index finished 1% higher at 1,956.36. Moving on to Australia, where same-sex marriage has become a front-page issue in the final days of the election campaign. The ruling party has promised to hold a plebiscite on the issue if it returns to power at this weekend's election, but questions remain over whether the party would abide by a result in favor of same-sex marriage. Meanwhile, a video has emerged of opposition leader Bill Shorten praising the idea of a plebiscite. Mr. Shorten last week slammed the government's plan as a platform for homophobia and advocated a parliamentary vote to decide the issue. But he told a Christian lobby forum in 2013 that he would rather let the public vote on same-sex marriage than leave the issue to Parliament. Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull is tipped to hold power at the end of the election on Saturday and is aiming to hold a public vote on same-sex marriage by the end of the year. But the result of the vote would be non-binding, and MPs would still need to pass further legislation to make it parliamentary law. Two senior Australian ministers have refused to say if they would support same-sex marriage in Parliament. In an interview, Treasurer Scott Morrison refused six times to say how he would vote. My view is, if the plebiscite is carried nationally, then the legislation should pass, Mr. Morrison told the Australian Broadcasting Corporation. If the plebiscite is not carried, then I think that settles the matter. The Treasurer, an evangelical Christian who worships at a Pentecostal megachurch, refused to give a straight answer even when challenged for clarity on the issue. In a separate interview, Foreign Minister Julie Bishop echoed the Treasurer's comments refusing to be drawn on the hypothetical issue. Meanwhile, the video of Mr. Shorten telling church leaders in 2013 that he was completely relaxed about a plebiscite on same-sex marriage has undermined his attack on the government. Mr. Shorten has claimed that the plebiscite would unleash a campaign of homophobia and hate, which could be avoided through a parliamentary vote on gay marriage. In an interview with the Australian Broadcasting Corporation, he played down his previous comments. Community attitudes have moved on in Australia, he said. When you look at the experience in Ireland over a year ago, some of the arguments which emerged were really ugly and repugnant. Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull, who takes a progressive stance on many social issues, says he will vote in favor of the marriage bill. As a cabinet minister, he indicated he would have voted in favor of a motion to legalize same-sex marriage last year. 
The proposal was opposed by former Prime Minister Tony Abbott. I'm Saif Hassan, and this has been your News Beyond the Headlines. Lines. Hello, this is Jake Winters for Eye on the Triangle. This is Snowverated, and today we'll be taking a look at the French animated film The Illusionist. There are a lot of people today that when they hear a film is animated, they will assume it's made for children or at mostly young adults. This is something I've brought up before, and I will say it again. This simply is not true. Animation is a medium for film that is as diverse, if not more diverse, than physical film. There are no boundaries in animation beside what your mind creates, and that is what makes it so different from your average film. Of course, there's framing, lighting, and visual effects in regular film, but this is also considered and planned in animated films. They are just as sophisticated as a normal film. Normal films have CGI and things, and that is also animation, so even more and more animation is showing up in regular films. So, enough of that rant. There's a lot to like about this film. It tells almost all of its story without dialogue, and what dialogue there is is in a variety of mumbling, singing, and jumbled languages. I love how they make the setting and characters feel so much more alive with the use of sound. You hear the pitter-patter of rain on an umbrella and the whoosh of wind as it enters through a window, and when the man performs, it is impressive to hear how well they could capture the sounds of both impressed and unimpressed audiences. The watercolor style of the movie is something that I have seen in a few short animated films, but I've never had the chance to see in a feature-length film. The style is so enjoyable to watch, and it truly can be said in this film that every second is a painting. There are so many breathtaking and utterly enjoyable shots in the film that I wouldn't hesitate to say that if you pause the movie at any particular moment, you could frame it. Of course, there are some more impressive shots than others, but the style of the film as a whole was extremely well done. I have always loved when films use minimal dialogue, and The Illusionist does this in a way I have never seen before. The story takes place in a couple of countries, which is one of the things that allows the artist to make such awesome visuals, and the languages that come with these areas are so satisfying to hear. At one point in the film, what I think is supposed to be an American, or maybe just a high-class British man, is talking to the illusionist, and the interpretation of his speech patterns is very amusing. The story that they are able to capture just in the movements and expressions of the characters is so real and genuine that connecting with the characters really isn't an option. The story is nowhere near childish either. The dark, somber tones of the movie are what come through most heavily in the story. The story is heartbreaking and sad for most of the film, but I wouldn't say it would make me cry, but... Depending on the person, I really wouldn't be surprised if it happened. The story follows a magician as he travels around performing his shows for various groups of generally unamused audiences, where he shadows more popular shows. He ends up meeting a younger girl that he takes under his wing. The relationship is not very conventional, but it is very heartwarming to see people take care of each other in that way. The animation is done so well in this film. One of the things that I noticed the most was the way different aged characters move. This is something that I've noticed other films do averagely, but not as well as this film was able to. There's one final shot at the very end of the movie that is just so beautiful that I think I watched it three or four times. It is a shot of the city that the illusionist ends up living in for a majority of the movie. The shot is just staggering, and I found myself looking for mistakes and minute details that I didn't even really think would be there, but I just wanted to see. The Illusionist is a great example of what animated films can be for adults. The Illusionist is a sophisticated piece of art that is alive with emotion and movement and tells a story in a way that a regular film would have trouble doing. The sad story of this man's travels as a magician left me thinking about what really matters in life and what it is to care about someone. The animation of the film was beautifully done and the story even more so. I'm giving this movie a 4 out of 5.
If you've listened to my review before, you may notice that I changed my scale to a 5 points instead of 10. This is because I found myself using mainly the upper end of the 10 point scale because I generally enjoy almost every movie I watch, but the films I found to be the worst actually never got below a 5. Anyways, you can stream this movie on Amazon as with most of the movies I review. Thank you for listening to this week's edition of Eye on the Triangle and Snowverated. I hope you enjoy the rest of your evening. You're listening to Eye on the Triangle on WKNC FM Raleigh. The time is 424 and for your community calendar. Of course, this weekend will be Independence Day weekend, and there are quite a few festivals happening in the Triangle area. The annual 4th of July Eno River Festival will be held on Saturday, Saturday, July 2nd, and Monday, July 4th, from 10 a.m. to 6 p.m. on both days at West Point in the Eno River State Park. The festival will include 65 different performing artists on four stages, food trucks and a craft fair, farming demos, paddling demos, and new this year, a holistic and healing arts area. The Works will be held in downtown Raleigh on Fayetteville Street from noon to 11 p.m. on the 4th of July. The celebration will include Independence Day celebrations during the day with live music, beer and wine tent, kids' rides and games, aerial performances, Cirque de Vol performances, eating contests, food and art vendors, and much more. Fireworks will light up the sky over the Duke Energy Center for performing arts starting around 9.30 p.m. Fourth of July fireworks will also be held at the following venues across the Triangle area. Briar Creek Commons, the Durham Bulls Stadium, South Park in Fuquay Verena, Lake Benson Park, Wake Forest High School, Sug Farm Park in Holly Springs, Coca Booth Amphitheater in Cary, Morrisville Community Park, and Nightdale Station Park. In the news, state legislators are moving a late-in-session coal ash bill rewritten to address the concerns of Governor Pat McCrory had when he vetoed a previous version earlier this month. The proposal is a is a surrender by the General Assembly on its ins insistence of having an independent commission monitoring the McCrory administration's regulation of coal ash cleanup in its basins across the state. It would do away with the Coal Ash Management Commission, which the state Supreme Court ruled was an overreach by the legislator in the executive branch because the governor didn't control it. The bill would allow Duke Energy more time to clean up its sites if it upgrades its basin dams and provides permanent drinking water connections for neighbors of coal-fired power plants. State environmental regulators would assess the progress the utility makes within 18 months. The bill is expected to come up in the Senate Rules Committee on Tuesday afternoon. The leg legislator is moving quickly towards the end of a session now that a budget compromise has been struck, expected later in this week or next. It would do away with the Coal Ash Management Commission. Although the legislature has enough votes to override the veto, legislative leaders decided to work with the governor to avoid a prolonged court battle and to get clean water to hundreds of well owners who live near Duke Energy plants. They have been living on bottled water that Duke has voluntarily provided for more than a year, although the company notes there is no definitive link between elevated levels of vanadium and hexavalent chromium, 
which occur naturally and in coal ash. Environmental groups were quick to criticize the compromise. The North Carolina Senate has once again failed to protect the people they claim to represent, said Dan Crawford of the NC League of Conservation Voters. Instead, the anti-clean water NC NC Senate has brokered yet another sweetheart deal for Duke Energy. Right now, families in North Carolina can't drink their own well water, but decision makers in Raleigh would allow for a monopoly with over $23 billion in revenue to to go two whole years without providing those families with clean water. When we say these politicians put polluters polluters over people, the NC Senate's coal ash bill is exactly what we're talking about. In other news, Fletcher Hartzell, a state senator from Concord, was indicted on Tuesday by a Wake County grand jury on allegations that he signed false campaign finance reports. The 69-year-old Republican turned himself in midday at the Wake County Magistrate's office. He is charged with three counts of certifying a campaign finance document as correct while knowing it was not correct. Hartzell is the longest-serving member of the Senate, having served during the administrations of five governors. Though he plans to finish his 13th term this year, Hartzell is not seeking re-election. His attorney, Wade Smith of Raleigh, described him as one of the most effective legislators in the General Assembly for years. I know so many people... It is a sad day because Fletcher Hartzell has been indicted, Smith said. He has been so often a voice of moderation and reason. He has reached out to people on both sides of the aisle to seek compromise. Yet at the same time, he has been a courageous advocate for the things in which he believed, such as local welfare reform, public health, legislation, public schools, and higher education issues. The State Board of Elections voted about a year ago to forward results of its lengthy examination of Hartzell's campaign finance expenditures to state and federal prosecutors on the belief that he had used campaign money to pay for personal expenses. A federal investigation is pending. The state investigation found that Hartzell spent more than $109,000 from his campaign account to pay for personal expenses from 2009 to 2012. In a statement last year on the board's action, Hartzell said that he believed he fully complied with the law. The elections board investigation discovered Hartzell spent campaign donations on dinners with his family, haircuts, shoe repairs, to pay for speeding tickets, part of his driver's license renewal fee, and so much more. Most most at issue, a state law that prohibits candidates from using campaign money for their personal expenses. Before October 2006, candidates could use their campaign funds on virtually anything. They bought cars, tickets to sporting events, laptops, and paid for trips and monthly expenses. The state legislator adopted a more restrictive law as part of the campaign and lobbying reforms. Adopted after a high-profile criminal cases involving lawmakers. Using campaign accounts for personal items is not is now allowed only if the expense is connected to the lawmaker's legislative duties. The elections board's investigation found Hartzell's campaign had more expenditures the day before the law changed than on any other day reviewed. Hartzell had filed to run for election to a 14th term, but abruptly withdrew his candidacy, 
saying in a statement that he wanted to spend more time with his grandchildren. And now a look at the weather. It looks like a rainy week in the Triangle. In Raleigh, today there is a high of 90 and a low of 67 degrees. Later in the week, on Thursday, there will be a high of 87 and a low of 69. Friday, we will have a high of 89 and a low of 71 degrees. And we're looking at a wet weekend with a high of 85 and a low of 72. Saturday and a high of 92 and 74 on Sunday. For the 4th of July, we're looking at a high of 90 and a low of 74. And next Tuesday, we're looking at a high of 81 and a low of 69. On this day in history for our history buffs, an important day for all you lovers of the iPhone, in 2007, Apple Inc. releases the first mobile phone, the iPhone. In 1992, a divided Supreme Court ruled that women have a constitutional right to abortion, but justices also weakened the right as defined in Roe v. Wade decision. In 2009, financer Bernard, Bernard Madoff received a 150-year sentence for his multi-billion dollar fraud, and in 2014, the Islamic State of Iraq and the Levant self-declared its caliphate in Syria and northern Iraq. As always, if you heard anything you liked, you hated, or anything that made you think, let us know at publicaffairs at wknc.org. And be sure to check out our blog at wknc-eot.tumblr.com. You can catch another episode of Eye on the Triangle next week, next week right here on WKNC. I'd like to thank our contributors, Jake Winters and Saif Hassan. For Eye on the Triangle, I'm Marissa Jordan, wishing you all a fantastic Wednesday afternoon and a spectacular 4th of July weekend.